Last year was interesting. I just come from a coastal Texas, like fish fly fishing for redfish trip. And we're like camping on the beach and it was like 92 degrees at night. And there's like a 30 mile an hour offshore wind. So casting was one impossible, was pretty much impossible. I mean, everybody still caught fish, but nobody got like the giant red fish that you're really looking for. But you just like, it's so hot. You couldn't even put your, like your rain fly on your tent and the sand would just come right through the mesh. So you're laying there with your eyes shut, just getting pelted by sand. And you could feel it like gathering in your eyes. You're just like, nope, this is tomorrow's problem. I just won't open my mouth. Welcome to Dead Drifter Society, a fly fishing podcast to share information, our adventures, and our opinions. We want to see where everyone is at in life and on the water. We'll ask questions and get answers so we can learn everything there is to learn about fly fishing. And now, here's your host, Andrew Barony. Welcome back, Dead Drifter. I am currently sitting in a motel room in Greenwood, British Columbia. Cute little town. Uh, not too much going on. Definitely hit the liquor store before six or you will not have a beer for your nighttime. That is what I learned, and I will not make that mistake again. That being said, on this episode, we will be chatting with Trevor Hubbs. He is from Wisconsin. I'm second-guessing myself on that, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to just stay firm with it. Fake it till you make it. So anyways, the main reason uh, we got connected was because he was in the armed force and he retired from that and found this beautiful nonprofit organization that was just starting up. And uh, yeah, so now he is, you know, one of the leads on it. And it is a beautiful organization. So backcountry hunters and anglers. Basically, they create events where people that were in the armed forces that have retired, veterans, uh, I guess even people in the armed forces that just want to get out and find purpose, give them a mission, something to, something to do and something that they can really dump their heart and souls into, which of course, being in the outdoors, hunting and fishing, it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, we talk about all the different events, all the different uh, things that they're kind of angling towards. Yes, that was a pun. And yeah, we had a really great chat, so really hope you enjoy this episode, and I will see you down at the end. Welcome to the podcast, Trevor. How's it going? Oh, it's going well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I know that, uh, are you part of the Armed Forces? Uh, yeah, so I was in the Army for eight years, and um, then I was a business consultant for about six years, and then I kind of fell into uh, running this nonprofit, and I've been doing that for a couple, two and a half years now. Yeah, and you're down in the U.S. Where are you located? Yeah, so I grew up in southern Missouri, and uh, right before the pandemic, me and my wife moved to Wisconsin for uh, my last job before um, running the nonprofit, and uh, that's where we still live, in Wisconsin. Oh, nice. I've never been there, but there's a lot of places I'd like to get out in the U.S. for fishing, I'd mostly. <laughs> It's like Diet Canada. It's fine. We have poutine, <laughs> snows eight months out of the year. It's fine. Great. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. Right on. Um, so what's what's this nonprofit all about? Yeah. So the Armed Forces Initiative takes uh, members of the military community, so active duty, veterans, National Guard, reserves, 
uh, Gold Star families and just kind of teaches them to hunt or fish with the intent that after attending one of our events, they don't need uh, have to rely on us or any other nonprofit or group to take them hunting or fishing. They're more or less self-sufficient. Right. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Um, and so I'm assuming, do you hunt as well? Yeah, you do. I know you do. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not the, not the greatest at it, but, uh, apparently I am the best available <laughs> for this job. So yeah, fair enough. Uh, when did you start hunting? Um, I went hunting for the first time with my dad when I was seven, uh, hunting for quail. So it was a great time, uh, fishing long before that, just cause fishing so much easier for kids, but, uh, bobbers and worms for bluegill and panfish those bluegill i've seen some pretty big bluegill on some of those social media I'm like surprised yeah. i mean you say panfish but like we got uh what are they the pumpkin seeds do you guys mm -hmm. have those out there sure yeah yeah okay so we got the pumpkin seeds out here and they don't grow much bigger than you know maybe four or five inches or so but i've seen some bluegill that are like thick boys yeah, it's it's it seems like it's becoming more and more popular. Like I was just seeing a uh, post on Instagram earlier today of uh, guys out there chasing bluegill with fly rods just because uh, water's too warm for trout and yeah. something to do. Interesting. Well, and it's great for kids. Like whenever I'd take um, my I guess niece out, we would do trout fishing. And if they're just the bite wasn't on or whatever, at that time I was just using power bait or worms. Yeah. Um, if nothing was happening, you just throw some worm on the hook and drop it straight down off the dock and we'll probably catch 10 or 20. Absolutely. Keeps them interested. That's what I do with my daughters. So yeah, that's yeah. awesome. When did you start fly fishing back then as well? Or did that come later in life? No. So I didn't really start fly fishing. Um, I, I did a little bit in high school. My dad fly fished when I was little and I was used to kind of tag along and and ruined the, uh, ruined the whole farm by throwing rocks and looking for crawdads and doing dumb stuff that kids do. Uh, but I didn't really start till high school. And even then I was just going cause the family was going. Mm -hmm. Um, I started seriously probably about eight years ago, like yeah. right before I was ready to get out of the army. Just remember my dad doing it and found a rod, uh, one of his old rods in the basement and was like, I'm going to give this a try. So. Yeah. Awesome. As far as the nonprofit goes, is it like, a rehabilitation thing at all or is it really just to get people outdoors and hunting and fishing well i don't think those two things are mutually exclusive right yeah so we try and do three uh we try and accomplish three things with each of our events the first one is we just call it short-term medicine right so that's just time outdoors time away from your cell phone away from your email away from all the stressors of life and really engage with it um but by engage with it i mean like either hunting or fishing some sort of activity where you're not just sitting by a fire or, uh, I mean, so much of camping now has just become like, let's go live in a tent and drink beer for four days. And that's not what we do. That's, that's not the point. So we like to do fishing, hunting. Uh, we do some like gathering classes or trapping, like something where you're participating all day. You're learning a new skill. You're getting mm -hmm. after it. We call that short-term medicine. The second thing we like to do is introduce our participants to a community of like-minded individuals. So we try and, uh, we're regionally based. So we have chapters in two Canadian provinces and 46 U.S. states. Wow. So for each event, everybody is local, uh, give or take within 90 minutes is what we try. Yeah. So when you leave the event, now you learned how to hunt and fish, and you know a bunch of people that have similar life experiences serving in the military and also want to learn how to hunt and fish. So if we have those two things, the likelihood that you go hunting or fishing again is very high. 
Um, the third thing we like to do is we call it um, a new a mission, right? Because yeah. that's the biggest thing that the military community is missing when they come out. And like you can read studies on veteran suicide, veteran mental health from the VA, and it, and it all says the same thing. Uh, it's one of the biggest pieces of advice uh, the military gives you when you get out is you have to find something that you're passionate about. Right. Because for so many people, you're passionate about the military. You know, every day you're making a difference. You're either training to go somewhere or you're going somewhere or you're recovering because you just went somewhere, um, especially the last 20 years being at war. But um, all of a sudden you get out of the military and you don't have that purpose anymore. Like, sure, you're whether you're, you know, a bank teller or a construction worker, whatever, engineer, doesn't matter. Right. Like now you're just you're working for you all of a sudden. And, that, and that's interesting uh, that that. In my experience, it's fun for like four or five months. And then after that, you start to feel like you're just missing something, right? Because you're not making the world a better place. You're not, you don't have a cause greater than yourself. So we'd like to give our participants that cause and we want that cause to be conservation, right? So it's something they can do every day, no matter what their real job is, that they can still serve their country, still serve their community. And um, that takes many forms, right? It's whether it's you want to go take a bunch of other veterans fishing or hunting like you just went went, uh, whether you want to come back and volunteer to cook at one of our events, whether you want to go, like, let's say we do smallmouth fishing on the fly in Northern Wisconsin, like maybe you don't want anything to do with BHA or anything to do with the armed forces initiative, but you so, but you become so passionate about smallmouth fishing that you just can't get away from it. Like, why does this river make a good smallmouth? What do I do to protect this river? Make sure there's not like a copper sulfide mine going in. That's going to disrupt the fishery. Right. So it's how do they participate in that conservation conversation? Right. So whether it's with BHA or not, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the idea is that we make them passionate enough and give them just enough knowledge to go be dangerous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really good. I uh, do you know the two provinces? Um, yeah. So um, we have British Columbia and the one just to the east, east of that that I'm going to mess up. Alberta. 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 So we have Alberta and then we have we're starting one in Manitoba. Okay. Um, we have like 18 people there. So I yeah. guess technically we have one, but they're very new within yeah. the last three months. When did this all start? And what do you know what state it started in? Yeah. So I was around for the start. So every year, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers does a uh, like an annual survey. So it's a grassroots conservation organization. So uh, actually, this year's survey is out right now. If you'd like to participate, just go to the website. But Basically, we ask anybody who's Instagram follower, Facebook follower, member, have you been to any of our events? Like, what do you think about this policy? What's the most important thing to you about being outdoors? Do you like to hunt, fish? Do you like to fly fish? Do you like to... Just trying to get a better idea of who our membership is and what they care about. Because, uh, like, so we're about, we're 20 years old next year, okay. uh, BHA is, and uh, all grassroots, about 50,000 members across uh, U- the U.S. and Canada. So anyway, we're just trying to get a feel for what our members want to see from us and what we can be doing better or what we're really we're doing good already. So 2018 was the first year we asked, are you a member of the military community? And at that point, 12.5% of our members were veterans, active duty military, National Guard, reserves, uh, which is interesting because uh, according to um, like the VA polls and different uh, government polls, the average Given like just the average U.S. population, like you take 100 random U.S. citizens, between 4 and 7% of them will have served. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, BHA is 12.5%. So what are we doing accidentally to double the national average of having these veterans and active military 
as members. So we started digging into that a little more in 2019. That's when BHA got me involved as a volunteer and started to look at, hey, why are you a member? What do you like about it? Why are these people members? So we start interviewing uh, other veterans, other active duty members that are part of BHA. And uh, not only did we have 12.5%, but that 12.5%, they were every state chapter had one person on the board that was a veteran or a active duty military, right? They were the ones organizing over half of our events, right? So like a river cleanup or a trail stewardship or planting sagebrush, like our veterans and our military community was the most active group we had. So 2019, based on those results, we decided to start the Armed Forces Initiative, which was really loose. It was me and five other volunteers that are all still involved. And it's, hey, go figure out how to get more of this military community involved in hunting and fishing. So we just kind of started taking people hunting and fishing on our own dollar and applying for grants and things like that. 2020, we got our first uh, like real grant and started doing more events. Um, yeah, we did our first real kind of like with insurance and that whole deal event in 2020, we took 18 people, uh, mule deer hunting in Eastern Montana. And yeah, now we're at 14,000 something members, 14,600, I believe something like that. And we're in 46 States. Um, we're all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool to see that kind of progression. And it is interesting with the numbers. Um, it makes sense though, because I feel like most people that would enter the military wouldn't want to like sit at home on their phones or like on the computer all day long. They'd want to yeah. be out in the bush or doing something. Exactly. But that's yeah. not intuitive, right? Like, so for example, we see it with a lot of like the infantry guys or um, like special forces units or anybody who spent time like outdoors in the military, like your job is to go camping and live outside. Um, they're not necessarily really into being outdoors. Oh, interesting. Well, it's because they, they view it as work, right? Where, Hey, here's uh, some of the, I don't want to say it's the worst equipment out there. It's good equipment, but it's not like when I took off my standard issue military pack and I have a, like a stone glacier pack now that I wear it's, it's night and day. Like, Oh my God, you don't even feel it in your shoulders and your back. It's amazing. But anyway, so when you're, you're dealing with equipment manufactured by the lowest bidder, and you're outside in the wind and the rain, you're working and it's, they find a way to make it not fun. So then in your mind, like, no, I don't oh. want to go camping. I don't want to go fishing. I don't want to go hunting. That's work. Like that's in their, in their brain is already developed into work. Okay. So like you're saying like the backpack and the gear, like, you know, obviously they're buying not one, not 10, but like thousands of these units. So they're buying like, you know, they're not going for the highest bidder. They're going for. Yeah. So the, like the, the stuff the military gives you isn't great. Um, yeah. Like Unless you go buy to, like your own personal, which I think you could probably do, right? Like you could some buy, groups like, can, but a lot of it's like. So I was in the 82nd Airborne, and it's uh, like we weren't even allowed to wear the rain gear the government issued us because we might break it. <laughs> okay, so you just like, you just get wet, right? So it's it's yeah. it's very much like let's find a way to make this not fun. Mm-hmm. So then the goal then, and for me that is very clear. Like I didn't, I never wanted to go hunting or fishing. When I got out, I was just like, now nah, I'm I'm done. This is not uh, not for me until my dad and my brother drug me out on a deer hunt. They're just like, just go sit in the tree. It's going to be fun. And it was fun, but it takes that first kind of step of somebody pushing you into it. Yeah. And now it's, I do it all the time. I was, on, I was in the field 260-something days last year, right? Lovely. Like, yeah. It's, um, so it can be good, but it does take a little bit of a push to get people back into it. No, that makes sense. Like I, I can only relate with the things I know, but when I'm... 
working construction and I have to put on either like super thick, like PC yeah. rain gear that like you, you put it on and you stay dry from the elements, but you're soaked because of your sweat. So it yeah. sucks. And then I go fishing and I got, you know, thousand dollar rain jacket, thousand dollar waders <laughs> or, you know, whatever they cost. Sure. You don't have to spend that much, but of course I decided I did have to. Um, and you stay dry and you're like cool and like, it's, it's yeah. you're not overheating. It's beautiful. So like when I think of like going to work in the rain or going fish in the rain or even the snow, I'm like, I'd rather go, you know, minus the, how fun fishing is and, and sometimes how not as fun work can be, but like just yeah. the idea of the mindset with, you know, the gear you have, that's a huge yeah. thing. And it's also, it's, it's just, you combine it with no sleep or very little sleep. There's no fires at night. Like everything is a tactical environment. So if you're wet on day one, like you, you're just wet. Yeah. You're just just wet. The time. Like there's not a real, real getting out of that. So they can make yeah. it pretty miserable, but yeah. And then I guess like obviously training and stuff, they're not trying to make it a fun day. They're trying to, yeah get you prepared for things that could happen and exactly be, being wet for multiple days, weeks, whatever could be yeah. what you're up against. Yeah. So how, and how long, sorry, you, I think you did mention it. How long did you serve for? And yeah, I was in the army for eight years. And, okay. uh, yeah. And then I got into the business consulting world after I got my degree, after I was out and now I'm, uh, did that for five or six years and now I'm here. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in the military, and I think this is Canada and the U.S. and probably other places in the world, they pay for your schooling. So you do your serving time, and then they'll pay for your schooling on whatever you're interested in, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And are you still... Sorry, you might have mentioned this too, but my head sometimes forgets things. Um, are you still doing the accounting thing? No, no, not at all. It's it, There's no time. I mean... Four nights a week, I'm working until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Um, like we were just talking about, my phone is just blowing up right now because I'm the only yeah. staff member. Oh, right. Wow. So 14,000 volunteers. Um, I have a board of directors that's got, I think we're up to nine people on it, that, and they absolutely help. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm the only one who's being paid to do this. So yeah. you're managing time zones all the way out from Alaska through through Maine and trying to get everybody else's calendar to work out and I mean, we do 130 something events a year for 2,000, 2,500 participants. Wow. Just making sure we have insurance for everything, making sure nobody's going to go hungry. Like, mm. just a lot of background work. Yeah. I can definitely feel you on the time zone thing. That's a, that's a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and the problem, like, my problem that I'm like bad at uh, managing is, it's such fun work. It's the greatest job I've ever had, right? Yeah. Like I get to take people hunting and fishing yeah. or help other people take people go hunting to go hunting and fishing. Um, so I have trouble like stepping away at, you know, 5 PM or whatever. Like, so if a guy calls me at eight or nine, like, wow, oh, well, it's Garrett. I'm going to, of course I'm going to answer. Yeah. Garrett needs to chat. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then it's like, and he was talking about a duck hunt in Chesapeake Bay over in Maryland, or I'll get a call from David in Alaska that wants to organize a salmon hunting or salmon fishing trip and what he needs to do for that. And like, so it's, it's never like a drain. Like, I mean, you get tired or whatever, but it's never like not in, like I have very little like busy work in this job, yeah. which is great. Like it's all important. So, yeah, no, that's good. And so if you're the only one that's paid, so like, I'm assuming that you kind of founded everything from the get go. Um, in a I mean, sense, we, or you just got appointed in a 
another sense. Yeah, basically appointed. We had, um, like I said, we had about four or five kind of main volunteers, and we were all taking a couple people out a year. Like I was in the Great Lakes. We had another guy in Wisconsin, or uh, I'm sorry, in Montana. We had another guy out east in like uh, New Hampshire region, and uh, another person in Washington. We're all just kind of taking maybe 20, 30 people out a year as mm-hmm. we have time for. And then we started getting some grants and some real funding and like, Hey, one of the grants is like, Hey, you have to have a, a staff member. You have to have somebody that's in charge and does this. So we all drew, drew straws and I drew the short straw to leave my full-time job and come do this. So, okay. So when you're pulling straw or uh, yeah, pulling straws, was it like, Oh yes, I got the short one. Or was it like, Oh no, <laughs> here we go. Oh, it's a little, I mean, it's a little bit of both. I mean, yeah, like I said, this is the greatest job I've ever had. Uh, I love what I do, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, it's never easy to take a hundred thousand dollar pay cut. Like you're not going to make money running a nonprofit, which is yeah. fine. We were in a good financial position, my wife and my family and I to do that, but uh, it was an adjustment for the first couple of years. Yeah, for sure. So now let's just like looking at the program. So you know, now you're a little more well organized. Let's say. Um, let's say I wanted, I got out of the military and I find this and I decide or someone told me about it or whatever, and I want to go hunting. Let's, let's start with hunting. Um, what does that kind of look like in terms of the next step? So I reach out to you guys, say like, Hey, I want to join this, go for a hunt. Let's just say yeah. deer. Then I wait for the next event. Yep. So the- all of our events are posted um, to our website. So it's just, they're in chronological order. If you're looking for a deer event, you're looking for something like September through December, and then you'll kind of focus on the part of the country you're in. So if you're in yeah. Georgia, you're probably looking like Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee kind of area, somewhere somewhere reasonably close. Um, you sign up like, hey, I would like to apply for this event. Um, depending on the event, sometimes we get you know 70 people apply because we you know, normally only take between 10 and 15 per event. Just okay. makes it a better yeah. camp experience, the yeah, fewer you have. Sure. But, um, yeah, so like for example, we did an elk clinic last year in Colorado, and we had like seventy people apply for eight spots. So then you got to sort through them, and hopefully you get drawn. But not everybody does get drawn. But then mm-hmm. some events, like we had a an event in Georgia earlier this year, that's just like kind of a blue lining, where just you go up in the Appalachian Mountains and try and find these little tiny creeks and throw some flies at them mm-hmm. for brook trout. All right, so that I think we had like four people sign up, so everybody got to go. Nice. Yeah. So it just depends on what the interest is and what the event is, but yeah, go ahead. You apply for an event, you get selected for the purposes of this example. And then normally, uh, that's eight weeks prior. So we cut off registration. I, I shouldn't say it. I say my instructions to all the team is that they cut off registrations eight weeks prior to the event, but more than likely it's about four to five weeks prior to the event, just cause everything's a little later. Yeah. So then you get on an email chain with the event leader, how many people are going. Normally you have a weekly meeting or sometimes it's a bi-weekly meeting, depending on the experience level. Like, Hey, this is the stuff you're going to need. Do you have all this? Do you need all this? What do you need? Cause we can realistically, you can show up in jeans and a t-shirt to any that of our was, events and we can outfit definitely, you. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just have to definitely. know that. <laughs> it's yeah. And that's, that was kind of my main concern because I was just thinking in my head, like, you know, I just got out of the military and got, you know, my job going. Like maybe I'm financially set, maybe not. But then, what do you do with the gear? Yeah, you know, I know fishing so, gear is expensive, hunting gear is expensive. 
Yeah, that's basically all we ask you to have. Uh, I mean, real you could show up in jeans and a t-shirt, but uh, nothing. We try and make this as easily accessible as it can. So just wear some earth tones, some brown, some green, gray stuff. Like you'll probably be fine for ninety percent of ours. Uh, we can loan you firearms. We can loan you archery equipment. We can loan you fly fishing gear. Like, and we have a lot of great corporate sponsors that'll just give that stuff to us to, to give away, which is nice. Oh, that's beauty. But um. Yeah, so then you show up. Day one is more of a normally we do like a Thursday through Monday. So Thursday night, everybody gets into camp. We do dinner. Everybody introduces themselves like, hey, I'm Trevor. I was in the Army for eight years, and this is what I do now. Everybody gets a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. And let's say we're going on a deer hunt. You get meet with your mentor, who's also a volunteer. And the next morning, so Friday morning, you guys go out to a deer stand or a ground blind or whatever. And your mentor's job is to teach you the kind of the, the how to hunt piece, right? So he's like, all right, this is like, while you're in the stand sitting there waiting or in the ground blind, this is why we picked this spot. This is what I'm looking for. Like as you're walking, like this is what deer tracks are. This is what deer poop looks like. This is why this is a good area to hunt deer and what makes that kind of the kind of difference. So when they go home, they know roundabout what they're looking for. Yeah. And then every day you do that, basically you switch mentors. So each mentor has a little bit different class. So you kind of have a different kind of, understanding from each people or for each from each mentor to give you a better well-rounded view of what you're doing then at night when you come back in we have dinner and we have a conservation class so the first one's usually like just conservation 101 like hey this is how species are managed whether it's trout whether it's deer whatever like we say this deer on this 90 acre parcel there's this 90 acre parcel produces x amount of calories which can support 30 deer now we know that 12 deer are going to be born every year. So now you have 42 deer, but over the course of the year, like eight are going to be hit by cars or whatever. So that allows for three hunting licenses on this 90 acres that will fit, that will kill a deer. So just kind of like basic conservation stuff, how to manage species. Where's your hunting license dollar go? Where your fishing license dollars go? And then the next night would be like a policy. So like if it's in like a Georgia or Tennessee deer camp, we're going to focus on uh, any policy that's relevant there. So like, I know in Georgia, they run deer with hounds a lot, and that's a very big cultural thing. So we're like, yeah, so it's it's interesting, super common down there. But if you cross the state lines into Tennessee or South Carolina, like maybe it's not as common. So it's kind of how to navigate like preserving cultural heritage with scientific sound management of the species, things like that. And these aren't like PowerPoint, like this is basically a dude around a campfire reading you a class and it turns into a very open conversation like this. No, this isn't college or even high school level biology. This is, I could teach these classes to eighth graders and be fine. Yeah. I'm, <clears throat> I almost put my hand up. Like I got a question. Um, hunting deer with hounds. Yeah. I've never heard of that. That's definitely, I'm sure that's absolutely illegal in Canada. <laughs> no it's illegal, it's illegal a lot of places but the yeah. farther southeast you go the more common it is i know they do it a lot in florida or okay. at least they did a couple of years ago um yeah it's super common and that was the the big way to hunt hounds or to hunt deer is you cut six to ten hounds loose and they run through the forest and the deer run in front of the hounds so you've got like a line of people set up waiting for the deer to run past and the hounds are pushing the deer okay so sorry i'm just it's quite interesting to me. So we're, we're standing in a line, we have the hounds and we're all facing the forest. Yeah. 
and then we'd let them loose. The hounds run around or run whatever through, get the get the trail or the, or the, the scent of the deer, and then push them towards the people. Yeah, so you'll have a group of hound handlers on mm. one side of like, oh. this forest, and they'll release the hounds. You have a group of shooters on the other side, one or two miles or half a mile or whatever the distance is away. Right. So okay. generally the hounds don't go out and like circle. They just run in one direction. Okay, understood. And then, like, is hound fatality high? Oh, I'm not sure. You'd have to check with the Georgia or Florida Department of Fish and Game. I'll call um, Florida up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure they keep numbers on it. I don't think so. Um, yeah, not probably. nearly as high as like hound hunting for bears is in uh, like Wisconsin right now. Um, we have such a wolf problem. Like the wolves will get on those hounds and it's, I get an email twice a week from Wisconsin DNR just because I sign up for the updates that just says hunting dog killed by wolves in Bayfield County or Ashland County and so anyway, yeah, interesting. I know we use like hounds for, or yeah, hounds for um, hunting mountain lions out here in BC. That's pretty common. I, I believe it is. I, I'm, I'm getting into hunting probably this year, this coming year. I've decided that uh, I want to do that. I want to do it with a bow. So you guys do. Um, that leads, I guess, into my next question. So you're doing. Um, are you doing bow hunting as well? Yep. Bow hunting, rifle hunting. We do big game, small game, upland, waterfowl, fly fishing, regular fishing, saltwater fishing. Like I leave yeah. it up to our local people, right? Cause that's, that's really the depending factors Our volunteers. Yeah. So like if I have a volunteer in Georgia, for example, who's like, Hey, I'm an okay Turkey hunter, but I'm really good at throwing a three weight fly rod around for 12 inch brook trout in these like small mountain streams. That's fine, man. I'm not going to make you do something you're not comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take four or five people trout fishing. <laughs> All right. Fine. We've signed you up for bear hunting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fun. <laughs> that, that's not how it works. Yeah. No, that but makes sense like too. People, like we have people in the Florida Keys that, uh, like, uh, oh man, Mark Gibson, one of my, uh, one of my friends that I met, years ago just by chance he's a veteran fishing guy down there was in vietnam like solid dude but uh like he realized after he got back from vietnam he's like yeah there's two things that really brought me back to the world and one is fishing in the florida everglades and the other one is that sweet stinky weed like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's like 67 year old man saying this is really funny but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well he takes people out for free on his boat and they do like they do the tarpon they do like yellow snapper like sharks whatever they're comfortable with like that's what he takes people to go do because he knows how to do that. Now he's not taking people hog hunting because he's not a hog hunter. Yeah. He's an offshore near shore fisherman, whatever you want to say. Yeah. Versus like our Colorado group, who's almost entirely uh based around bow hunting elk. Okay. Like, I shouldn't say that. They they do like they do some trout fishing, they do other stuff, but they when they started, it was almost exclusively like we're gonna run three how to bow hunt elk classes a year. Great. Good for yeah. you. And then I guess like you're kind of just explaining there as time goes on and more members and more people want to volunteer those numbers of things in those states or provinces, I guess, can can grow. Like, you know, Jimmy comes along and he's like, yeah, I love elk hunting, but, you know, I'm actually a really good brown trout angler. Yeah. Then you've got a guy in Nebraska called us three months ago. He's like, hey, um, Heard about you guys online, went to an event in Minnesota, really enjoyed it. Um, would you mind if I put on a trapping class for veterans and would you like teach me how to do that? Absolutely. I'd love to do a beaver trapping class. So in November, they're going to have like a beaver trapping clinic 
um, on the Missouri River in eastern, yeah, eastern Nebraska. That's so, so cool. Yeah, and and that right that just shows that the the mission is working right. Like he left one of our events and said, "Hey, I want to do this for more people. Like this may, means something." Yeah. So, well, yeah. and that's something like I, I was never in the military. I did Army cadets, which obviously is nothing alike, but at the same time similar in a sense. Sure. Um, but that was kind of the cool thing was like as we grew in rank, we would have to start teaching classes, and that was actually the first time I ever realized I kind of liked knowing a skill and sharing a skill because that yeah. like it feels good to like i don't know yeah you know what i mean like it, it's it's nice yeah. to help people along and to to show them something they may have known or you know not very well and or just had no idea about and then see them kind of prosper and that's like when i started guiding i knew i'd like the teaching aspect of it but now i'm like oh whatever about the fish like look at this fly rod <laughs> you know look yeah. what we can do with this and like this is how i can help you um, yeah but i really like the the whole aspect of like you know they go to an event they learn how to hunt deer and then they can go home on their own and start planning out their next hunt versus like oh i need you to be there or else i don't know what i'm doing like, that's a really empowering and all of our uh all of our planning documents are available. We're actually working on a, we say we're, um, I mean, the board and I are working on a system right now, which we have the system in place to share it very like wild, widely on the internet. It's just, just waiting on me, like everything, just you run out of hours in the day, but just mm -hmm. posting like, Hey, this is, if you want to go on a caribou hunt in Alaska, we did last year. Here's all the steps it took logistically to get there. Oh, do you want to go, um, fishing for what are striped bass on the Chesapeake Bay? This is the gear you would need. This is who you would talk to to make sure that you have the right licensing. You're in the right places. Just kind of putting all that information that we talk about at these camps. So we, we already have it written down. Like it's already in our files. I just need to post it. Essentially, it's just going to be a blog of yeah. tips and tricks that we've learned over the past three years. And like I said, we have it all written down. It's it's just me putting the pictures to it and like the little diagrams and putting everything in the right order and publishing it out on the internet. So it will happen. We're going to start it. Like I've already started it, but we will, uh, my goal is to finish it by this time next year. Yeah, no. So. And that's really good too. Cause I, I love this. This is like, I don't know. I know it's for the military. Is it just for the military? So like, right now, yes, we just do, um, stuff for the military, Yeah. but ideally like what I would love to happen is, uh, like the regular BHA group who's like, who's in charge of us. Like we're just one program that BHA puts on. Okay. We kind of pick up this, uh, this classroom or this, whatever organization, this structure process, whatever you want to call what we're doing and put it on for regular BHA members, whether you're in the military or not, because mm -hmm. nothing's stopping you. Like if BHA Colorado said, Hey, that was a really cool event that you guys did for bow hunting elk. Can we copy it? Yeah. yeah. Here's all the planning documents go like, it sounds mm -hmm. great. Same with Georgia, Louisiana, anybody like, yeah. Because I feel like, I mean, you know, any, a lot of people, in my opinion, this is all my opinion, so, you know, we don't have to agree with me, but no, I see there's like a, a, the barriers that are in place, you know, like I talk to people that are like, well, I want to get into fly fishing. I've never done it, but I like stumbled upon your podcast. Like, where do I start? And I'm like, Yes. Where do you start? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, well, you're going to want to get yourself a fly rod or borrow one. Probably learn to cast. 
first. As hard as that is, like when I first got into fly fishing, someone told me that, like, learn to cast first. I went to the lake right away. You know, I was like, well, no, I need to catch a fish. But yeah, there's like steps. But then the, uh, the next barrier is money, you know, for a lot of people out here, out anywhere. Money is always the kind of the blockade, but it, it is good because I know like people that come out of the military, I, I can only imagine have no, no real idea, but coming out of like an actual war zone or something like that. And then just sitting in a cubicle or, or, you know, serving someone food or whatever you might be doing. It's just like, yeah. what the heck is going on here? You know? Oh, it's Here's, tough. Yeah. Yeah. So having I mean, it's uh yeah, and then they take you away from like those friends that you develop in the military. Like that's why they call it a brotherhood or sisterhood. Like yeah. you're never closer to anybody ever. No, like even the word friend. Like you don't want to call them friends. Like something uh, closer than a brother that, but uh, not as close as a wife. Is kind of the, uh, <laughs> the description that I like to call it. Like it's yeah, insane how close you get to these people, and then all of a sudden you're just by yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's it's not as if like like I, I was spent a lot of time at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I'm not from North Carolina. Like that's mm-hmm. a thousand miles away. And, but doesn't matter. Cause the guys I was with a couple from New York, a couple from Florida, a couple from Wyoming. Like I'm not close to anybody. Mm-hmm. So you, all of a sudden you get out and it's like, realistically, like you might never see those guys again. Yeah. Now you're at a job where you're not getting any self-satisfaction from it. You're not uh, in your mind, at least not making the world a better place doing it. Mm-hmm. And you've lost like the closest friends you've ever had. It's yeah. very easy to see how this could lead to some poor mental health decisions. hundred percent. And then like the whole training, I mean, I only know, like I have a few friends that were in the military, some are still, um, but you're trained to move as a unit, not like, okay, I'm going over here now. See you guys. You know, like you're a group, you're, everyone has their reason to be doing what they're doing in that moment or Mm -hmm. exercise or whatever. And then, yeah, you're just, like you said, just sitting there by yourself, like contemplating, what's going on so yeah i I really like that um and i guess you have no plans obviously on stopping so it's just like keep growing it keep like setting the events do you guys uh set your events up like yearly kind of thing where you're like okay um, yeah so this is something we're laying out right the plan right now like this will be our second year doing this and then we'll tweak it a little but it seems to be working is we ask for i ask all of our volunteers in the states to do two events a year now they end up doing like 10 a piece because they enjoy it. And then they find volunteers that'll run them for them and it just keeps growing. But on paper, we ask for two events a year. It can be two fishing, two hunting, one of each, doesn't matter, right? Are you building conservationists within the military community? Are you teaching people to go hunt and fish? If the answer is yes, go do the event. Sounds great. Um, they get those plans to me by January 10th of every year. That by January 30th, the board and I have reviewed them. They're like, okay, this will cost 300 This will cost 500 Well, this is our main budget, and we just kind of whittle away until we're, we get as many as planned as we can. This year, I think it's 136 uh, But uh, so anyway, January 30th, you get, yes, your plan is a go for the year. Go ahead and start planning. And then uh, about 12 weeks before the event, they give us like the finalized paperwork. Like, Because the first plan is just say, hey, this is what we're doing. About the time of year where we're going so like i'm going to deer hunt in the schwarmingen national forest in the first two weeks of november it's going to cost 500 dollars, right prove it then i guess it would be like this time of year like late august early september i want to know exactly where you're camping how many people you're bringing do you have all the gear you need do you need us to bring you gear 
your grocery list is finalized, all that stuff is in order. And then that's three months prior. Then two months prior, the event uh, is closed for registration on paper, like where people have signed up, it's been on the website. And then you have two months of, all right, now let me prep all the people that just signed up to go do this. Mm-hmm. Do you have warm clothes? Do you have gloves? Do you, are you afraid of heights? Should I stick you in a ground blind? All that kind of, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then November comes, you do your event and you go home. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of planning. So good. On it's you. interesting. It's uh yeah. It, it's one of the strengths I think of the military community though, is like, that's something that they, in the airborne infantry we drilled all the time is, Hey, you've never seen this spot before other than on a map, but you're going to drop in there and you're going to get these things four things done. So like, let's see, I, I leave in seven days to take 10 people on an Alaska caribou hunt in a place where nobody that's going on that hunt has ever been. I've never been there, mm. but you figure it out and you make it work. And I think that is a strength that maybe the military has over um, like this, a regular civilian participant is we don't get as nervous about those things. Cause I don't know. Maybe it doesn't seem as daunting, but we just have a little more experience planning stuff that seems crazy. Yeah. Well, I know from a few of my friends, even that were just in the reserve and stuff, like their ability to, well, you guys get taught these things, like literally Mm -hmm. taught these things, which, you know, you go to public school or whatever for 12 years and then you go to college and university, but your life skills and like your actual, like mapping out how to get to your goals and how to accomplish things those skills are rarely fully defined yeah. throughout your schooling. I mean, I guess depending what classes you take sure. or not, but yeah, military is, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of value there. That's for sure. Well, it's interesting too. Like just how little complaining you get um, <laughs> okay. at these <laughs> events. Like it's like, yeah, we had um, a rep or like a, assistant i don't know what his actual job was but he worked for senator tester who's one of the senators that sits on the va committee for the u.s government mm-hmm. and talks about veterans affairs and does all that and he came to one of our camps to kind of see what we were doing because we asked for x amount of grants from the federal government to keep doing our job and uh some guy some guy got wet on like day one and we're anyway like 20 miles from the nearest road like we were hiked into this wilderness area doing some uh fishing for like cutthroat trout so it's, it was like july it was summertime um so, anyway, but anyway, guy like just like stumbled, fell in, got up. Oh man, your boots are going to be wet this whole time. Are we going to hike out and get them more? What are we going to do? I'm like, no, he's just going to deal with having wet boots. <laughs> yeah. And the guy like didn't complain at all. He's just like, yeah. And like, got wet uh, boots. Trying to remember. <laughs> like the one thing he said, he's just like the, the, the senator's aide or whatever was so like worked up about it. And the guy's just like, hey man, sometimes you're wet, but it won't be wet forever. Like it's just like, yeah, that mindset takes you so far in life, I think. Well, and that's like, I don't know. That's another thing I think should be taught more in just the average civilian world is, is your mind and like actually how powerful it can be and like how you, your, your mind will give up much quicker than your body. Yeah. And I I don't think a lot of people understand that where they're like, Oh, I'm done. And it's like, well, you could still go like for days if you had to You actually had to. So yeah, (laughs) that is cool. Less complaining. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. So you yourself get to go on a lot of these events. Uh, so last year, of yeah, last year I was in the field 260 days. I think 217 of those were for work. Okay. Um, so I'm going to those events, you know, trying to teach people to run them, just kind of help. Mm-hmm. 
where, where I can. Uh, this year, I've spent a lot more time in the office, which has been great for the family life. But uh, even this year, I think I'm going to be out 12 weeks, whatever that is, 70-something days. Mm-hmm. Um, how it should work is I do, like me individually, I do four what we call like train-the-trainer events, which is I take people that like, hey, I'd like to run a camp or an event in my state. How do I do it? Great. Come to this event. And we try and do them like regionally. So like one in the Pacific Northwest one in the Southeast, one in the Northeast, one in the Southwest, trying to get these people that want to be leaders together. And I'll take them on like a sample event. Like, Hey, we're going to go quail hunting in Arizona. And I'm going to bring people from California, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, West Texas, like all the people that want to be leaders. We're going to go quail hunting. And I'm going to show you like, Hey, this is how a perfect event should go. So whether you're quail hunting, trout fishing, deer hunting, whatever it is, like go replicate this. So I should do four events like that a year. And then I should do one, uh, we call it like a capstone trip or a priority landscape trip. That's what this Alaska trip is coming up. And that's really, um, we put a lot of marketing dollars into that. I shouldn't say a lot of marketing dollars because you don't have a lot of dollars, period. But we put 90% of our marketing dollars into that trip. So like with the people, 10 people going to Alaska, we're also bringing a producer and a videographer. The goal is to make like a 12-minute video, nothing super long, that explains who we are, what we do, and why you should care. So when I, we do fundraising events all over the U.S., we can show that and be like, hey, we did 130 events just like this last year. Give generously, you know, or whatever. I'm not the sales guy. But uh, yeah. anyway, so then I do one of those kind of like marketing or advertising trips a year. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like that. That's good, man. I'm super supportive. It's interesting. It's because yeah. uh, I, I have no history in like the filming or the media and stuff. And that's... Uh, very not comfortable with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, well, it's, t- it's so tough. Like, I don't know to try and make it all seem genuine and not uh, like just super sales pitchy. Yeah. Cause it is, there's real results happening, but it's, I don't know. No, Maybe I feel you. Yeah. I do feel you. Even with my podcast, I've had things pop into my head where I'm like, Oh, maybe I should have a sponsor or something. And I'm like, no, oh, it's, gets away from certain things you know i don't necessarily think i have a message but i have a message of some sort and i'm sure some people pick it up or whatnot but yeah sending out the right the right vibes and and you know wanting to encourage people to come in you don't want to be like you know buy this buy this buy this or whatever that kind of thing so um and then all that so all your information is on, I guess you're, you have Instagram, Facebook, and then you have a website as well. Yep. Instagram, Facebook, and then, uh, the website. So, uh, Instagram is just BHA, BHA, like Bravo hotel, alpha underscore AFI, which is, uh, alpha Foxtrot India. Mm-hmm. So just the letters. Uh, we have different Instagrams for like all of our States, like Montana has one, Washington has one, Idaho, um, uh, so follow, follow, follow anything with the letters AFI in it would be my advice. You'll probably come, come across us eventually. Um, Facebook, just the armed forces initiative is our, excuse me, kind of page there. And then our website is just backcountryhunters.org. Okay. So, yeah. And then that, uh, the blog that you're working on, or I guess the tips and tricks yeah. blog that will be on the, the website itself. Yep. So it's on the website. We have a couple of them up already. Um, by, I, I literally mean two. We have two. Yeah. So bear with us. But as the year goes on, like I'm, I just have a plan to do 20 a quarter. Mm-hmm. So it's every third day I go and do one 
do one and just I'll, I'll get it knocked out by next year. Beauty. Well, I guess so. You already have all this information. You just have to transfer it into a blog yeah. form. Yeah. So, like right now, today I'm updating um, what we call an op or an operations order for Alaska. Like that's what I've been doing for the four hours today, and it's I'm at like 18 pages right now. But it's got maps, it's got packing lists, it's got mm-hmm. comms equipment, who we contacted, why we went with this group, who, what kind of boats we're using, life jackets, all that stuff. It's like we have it, but it lives on my desktop or in a shared Google Drive. So it's just yeah. transferring that information in a digestible form mm-hmm. to the internet and a blog post where you can Google packing list for Alaska caribou, and we will be one of those search terms or whatever. Yeah. Oh man, and that is just the most like valuable information. Even when I go out fishing, I'm like, what do I pack? Where am I going? What am I? Yeah. Yeah. What so are the elements going to do? Yeah. Three weeks ago, we did a trip for 18 veterans on the Yellowstone River in Montana. Just Day one was, this is what a fly rod is, right? And this is how you flip over rocks and then tie on whatever fly looks like that bug. Then day two is kind of walk and wade stuff, like kind of smaller stream looking for like rifts and holes and why you would throw a fly here versus there. And then the third day was, we're going to actually row a boat on the Yellowstone River. Everybody's going to get some time rowing. Everybody's going to get some time casting and kind of put it all together there, Mm -hmm. right? We're like, nobody's going to leave being a fly fishing guide, but they are going to be proficient enough, hopefully, to pick up a fly rod and go to their local stream or lake and try and catch something. Yeah. No, that's super good. Um, as far as, like, I know you guys are obviously have a big idea of how you want things to go, and but is there any, like, massive future kind of plans for this, or is this already on that direction? Uh, I mean, when we started, we started with 18 people. And looking at like our goal then, I was like, well, I think we can get to a hundred people next year. And people yeah. were like, oh, that's crazy. You know, you're growing five times your size. Like maybe we should set it to 50 people. I'm like, okay. And then the next year we had 200 people. And I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe we'll get to 300. Then we were at, I don't know, whatever, like 6,000 yeah. or 14,000. It's just like, um, I, so I have no idea what the future looks like. We're just going to keep on our path. And, um, I think I'd like to, uh, like to get to 20,000 by 2025, but who knows? We could, we could get there next year. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and that just goes to show the, the need. Yeah. Right. There. And that's the, uh, so our biggest struggle right now is we're finally at the point where, uh, not finally, I mean, we always spend all the money we, we get in grants, but we're finally at the point this year where we are, we are going to be very close on budgets stuff. Like, so we try our, our budget is like $500 per event is what we can give people. Cause really with our corporate sponsors, we can provide gear, all that stuff for no cost. We just have to cover give or take like renting a trailer for some camps. We have to cover that. And then we have to buy food for people to cook, but even a lot of grocery stores are donating food now, which is great. Beautiful. But uh, we try and keep costs low, but it's going to be close this year. I think we, we will have like $200 left over. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and that's good. I mean, clearly all the funding going to where it's supposed to, that's always a nice thing to hear. And then yeah. it's nice to hear that, you know, grocery stores donating and like, do, do you guys ask for donations from the, let's say general population or is it um, like yeah. a... so you can go on our website right now and donate, um, give or take our cost, like cost to attend is free, but our cost uh, is $50 per participant per day. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's that's all the food, that's gear that we would have to buy for them, like permit fees to launch on the Yellowstone River or camp in the Boundary Water Wilderness area, all that stuff. So it's fifty dollars per day. So that's an easy way for people to think about it is 
you donate fifty dollars, you have paid for one veteran to be to learn how to fish for today or whatever. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll definitely make sure that's all linked up. Um, I did have a question kind of earlier, and it's not really that important, but it was just a thought in my head. Um, I don't know. We can exclude Canada for now. Uh, In the U.S., if you go through the military, you obviously got what I would assume would be like a military firearms license. Well, so you don't really need a license in the U.S. for a firearm. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Where uh, uh, technically in Illinois, you need a firearm owner's identification card. Uh, once you turn 18, um, there might be like Illinois, California, New York might have that. Might just be Illinois. I can't remember. But um, but yeah, you don't really need a license. So you can just go if you're 18 and you don't have a felony, you can just go buy a gun if you're a citizen. Yeah. Uh, except a handgun, you have to be 21 to buy a handgun and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, it's very opposite in Canada. Yeah, I, I picked up on that. I'm not an expert at it, but uh, yeah, it yeah. seems most. I've hunted yeah. bear in Canada with our uh, team in British Columbia, and that was uh, – I thought it was going to be a lot harder, but, like, all the forms are online. So, like, I just printed the online form, filled out, like, hey, this is the rifle I'm bringing, and then you just declared at the border, and they were super cool about it. I thought it was going to be, like, a hassle. Mm-hmm. Like, open the case. So they're like, yep, this is the serial number you said you'd bring. Make sure you take it with you when you leave. I'm like, all right, buddy. Easy yeah. enough. Take okay. It. I don't. I wonder. Wonder how it would be for a Canadian bring. I'm sure it's it's about the same. Yeah. Um, I know. I know. Like as far as getting your firearms license in Canada, it's not overly complicated. You go do the course or you challenge the test. I believe. I think you can challenge the test, um, and then you wait for however long. I just sent in my pal or my my paperwork for it, so we'll find out when that comes back. Um. But then, yeah, then like you can't have handguns anymore. You can, if you already owned a, f- a handgun, you can have it. And I believe you can still go shoot at the range with it. Yeah, you just have to like contact um, and declare where you're going. You have to have your point A and point B destinations and like tell them. And like you can stop at, let's say, a gas station. But if you're doing that and you went into the store to go grocery shopping and all that and you happen to get checked, that could be a big problem for you. So huh. it's, yeah, it's, it's getting a little tight around here, but yeah. Yeah. We don't need to get into politics. <laughs> we'll leave that out of this episode. Yeah. Um, we're pretty fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good though. I mean, and then as far as like fishing license, um, you know, it's not overly complicated, but that could be a hurdle. I, do you guys kind of assist or at least like put the websites for people so they can just find. Oh things? yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll walk you through exactly how to buy a license, um, what you need a license for. Like some fish you need tags for, some fish you just need a license, depending mm-hmm. on like, like sturgeon are a big thing where you're only allowed one, paddlefish you're allowed one. or Anyway, it's a very regulated system. So whatever the event is, like we walk you through all that. Yeah, so it's just made simple. You, yeah. you want to go, you sign, you sign up for the event, you get in. From there, everything's laid out very neatly for you. And Yep. So you have to financially, the only thing a participant is responsible for is buying their license and their travel to the event. Once you're at the event, travel's on us, but traveling to get there. And that's just because our insurance company says like, we can't cover that because if they like wreck their car or the plane crashes, then we're liable. And anyway, insurance, I bet that was a hurdle in itself. We got dropped by our first insurance company (laughs) last year. Now now we've got a really good system. Really like our insurance uh, company. Now I talk to them once a month. Yeah. Uh, our agent and we're good but 
Yeah, the yeah. first year, just trying to figure out because there was no other groups doing this. Yeah, right. Like the closest thing would be like guide or outfitter insurance, but even an outfitter is taking maybe two hundred people a season, and yeah. we're taking twenty five hundred people a year in forty six states. It's uh, yeah, just a bit of a, a number difference there. Yeah, no, that's really good. And um, well, I guess let's talk about you, Trevor, a little bit. So I know you started uh, hunting. I think it was when you were seven. Yep, quail. Yeah, See, I can remember some things. Yeah. Um, and then you got into fly, or you got into gear fishing earlier on than that, and then got into fly fishing more around your teen yeah. years. You find some spare time. No one's calling you. Well, they're probably still calling you or texting you. Sure. Um, what do you like to do the most in terms of you know? I know you like fishing and 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 hunting, yeah. but what's what's kind of the thing that's an event you want to go do for yourself? Oh. The event that I want to do closest, like closest to me that I will do every year is smallmouth fishing on the St. Croix river with a fly rod. Right on. It's um, like the whole, it's really interesting river. It's one of the part of the, like the original, like fur, like fur trappers trades, like those French and Indian fur trappers who go from the great lakes and they have to get to the Mississippi river to get everything down in new Orleans. Yeah. So it's like, which is a series of like smaller rivers, one of which is the St. Croix and um, the whole river is like it's a very it's like very tannic water kind of looks like iced tea but Mm. um shallow so you could float it in a drift boat and um if you just throw like a a frog or a mouse pattern and you just hit the shore every like eight feet and just strip back toward you're gonna get big small mouth they're gonna fight hard and there's a decent musky population in the lake so you can get to catch musky on the fly with the same gear you have for a small mouth which is a lot of fun yeah so you're probably running like a eight weight or something like that just yeah to sure. i wouldn't go up there with less than an eight weight like some yeah. guys are running 10 and 12 weights but they're primarily looking for musky yeah 100 so. yeah. percent. and it's all public water so like you put in you can float for i think it's like 36 miles but you just camp anywhere along you do multiple day floats it's, it's a really good time that is something that i'm sure it can be done in canada but of course like you know numbers wise on videos and stuff us has a higher population so a lot more comes out but sure. doing like a multiple day float is definitely on the bucket list have you done that yeah I, we did that with veterans uh last summer did it again this year um yeah i, I think it's amazing oh that is so cool it, well it's like so you can just camp on these islands and yeah um i mean you got to bring like a bug net and stuff because as soon as the sun starts to set they're gonna <laughs> yeah. get nuts. it's uh last year was interesting i just come from a coastal texas like fish fly fishing for redfish trip Mm -hmm. and we're like camping on the beach and it was like 92 degrees at night and there's like a 30 mile an hour offshore wind so casting was one impossible was pretty much impossible i mean everybody still caught fish but nobody got like the giant red fish that you're really looking for but you just like it's so hot you couldn't even put your like your rain fly on your tent and the sand would just come right through the mesh you're laying there with your eyes shut just getting pelted by sand and you could feel it gathering in your eyes just like nope this is tomorrow's problem i just won't open (laughs) Oh, oh hopefully anyway. i don't blink in my sleep it was fun but it was definitely like type two fun where it's fun remembering it at the time i was just like this is miserable <laughs> am i but still I in the military <laughs> what's going on here Dude, i just got roasted and then oh, two days later i was paddling some some folks down some veterans down the saint croix river and uh the black flies and the noceums were just super thick but my face is like blistering and peeling because it's so sunburned. I got to hit it with the, with the bug spray and it's just burning. And I'm just like, God, 
Yeah, oh, it was miserable. But yeah. uh, <laughs> caught some amazing fish. Great time. Oh man, the things we do for for getting outdoors, eh? For a little enjoyable moments, some relaxation yeah. time, sand in our eyes. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah it's lovely. <laughs> yeah, so that's awesome. So smallmouth, um, would that be kind of your your uh, main target? Like, is that your favorite fish to target, or do you? Just uh, that one is my favorite fish that is like I do not have to get on a plane or drive more than four hours to target. Yeah. I can go target smallmouth 20 minutes from my house in the Milwaukee River right mm-hmm. now with a fly rod, and you're gonna catch them. Like they're they're fun, they fight super hard. Um yeah, they're a blast. Mm-hmm. Now that said, uh if I lived in Montana, I would probably be a cutthroat trout guy. Mm-hmm. Especially like you get to those high alpine lakes and those streams that are like Six thousand feet and above in the Rocky Mountains make you feel like the greatest fly fisher in the world because they they've never seen a fly. Like, yeah, you just land like a feather and a hook on top of the water, and they're gonna yeah. rush it. And it's just sometimes you may only need a hook. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a confidence builder. It's, yeah, that's great. Yeah, out here on the island, every because uh, we got salmon that come into all our systems. Um, every year we got the egg season that happens for trout. And when I was first starting fly fishing, I was always like, I'm the best, like, oh, (laughs) 10 trout, 20 trout, whatever. I can't not catch a cat or catch a, a a trout. And then trout end season would end or the egg season would end. And I'd be back to the drawing boards. Like I suck. (laughs) That's funny though. It's, I love the, the aspect of like targeting multiple species and like having it so close to me but being on an island we get stuck like either you have you have to pay for the ferry like i'm going away guiding in the kootenays for a Mm -hmm. couple of months um and that's going to be i think my one-way travel there with my raft and my truck is like 260 bucks oh man and then i have to come back so just for that you know and then I decided to get a hotel or a motel room um, on the way up there and just split the day up. Like I can drive 16 hours in a day, but I really don't want to. Right. Yeah. Get tired, loopy deer, bear, whatever. Oh yeah. Don't want to deal with that. So I was like, I'll get that. And then, so that's the one downside when I talk to people, you know, Wisconsin or whatever. And they're like, Oh yeah, I drive six hours this way. And, and I'm there in this beautiful state doing this beautiful fishery. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds nice. But yeah, yeah, there's the grass always greener on the other side, right? There's some. Yeah. I mean, we have salmon in the Great Lakes. Like I can go chase kings when they come up in uh, later this month. They'll probably start hitting the rivers. But um, it's not like kings in British Columbia or the kings in Alaska or anything like that. It's uh, yeah. very like you're shoulder to shoulder fishing with a hundred other dudes lying down this river, just half of them are pretending that they're not snagging them, but they're snagging them. Like, yeah. Oh, and we see that too here. There's definitely, and that's one thing, you know, I, I used to knock gear fishing because, you know, there's that always that kind of like, Oh, and I'm sure it's almost the same with like bow hunters, like people that strictly bow hunt versus strictly hunt with a rifle where there's a bit of like animosity around it where it's like, Oh, I do this, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like that. But now I'm like, but the only difference I, I see that's more, you know, that is there is people that fly fish. They spend that little extra time 
just trying to freaking catch one fish. So, <laughs> you know, when you see a gear guy and they take a treble hook and put a little piece of yarn on it and cast it out there and start like, you know, j- yeah. jigging it back basically. And you're like, no, you're snagging. And they're like, nope. Not me. <laughs> I'm like, mm, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> leave you alone, I guess. No, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and when you, so you've lived there for a while. So when you started fly fishing, it was pretty much smallmouth and largemouth, and yeah, yeah. So it started like you have a lot of warm water species up here. Now we do have some cold weather uh, trout. They just, um, I shouldn't say. I mean, you get big. You you can catch a 24 inch brown trout uh, oh. within like an hour of me. I haven't. I've caught like a 14 inch brown trout. Like, nice. but nice. it's um, but it's fun. And that's, that's another thing. I do that a lot in spring, like right after turkey season when the water's real cold and just stalking around a little three foot wide creek with a three weight or a four weight and just trying to get them to take dry flies. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, hundred percent. Have you ever yeah. done night fishing? Yeah, so that's uh, we do a lot of like mousing at night, where you uh, sweet you bring like that mouse pattern, try and get those big browns to just crush it, and and they will. You'll get some good ones, but that's yeah. uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no, I love it. it. It really sounds like that program is really or the nonprofit. I guess it's a program, anyways. Um, sure. It's really covering like all the bases, which is really cool, and it's good too with the like fishing and hunting and you know, bow hunting, rifle hunting, fly fishing and gear fishing, because I think that was something that like in my world of fly fishing, I got very closed in where I was just thinking fishing with a fly rod. But like you said, you know, one state to another might have, this is like what a lot of people do out there and stuff. So it's very inclusive. And, and I guess you guys got that mission of like, um, giving people a mission giving people purpose yeah which and, is and it's huge. broad enough that you can you can do whatever whatever you like or whatever you know how to teach people and you're still within mission it's uh it's nice because ideally like i don't care if you start to learn how to catch stripers on traditional tack spinning tackle in the chesapeake bay like nothing says in two years you won't see somebody fly fishing mm-hmm. on facebook or instagram or something be like man i think i should try that yeah you can still grow like this is very entry level stuff like honestly my goal with everybody leaving an event is they know like realistic if they know where their fishing license dollars go and they know that what they need to reasonably go catch a fish on their own that's a success like it, it can be as simple as that like really step one stuff yeah yeah and then yeah so obviously people like you were just saying are you know i guess you get a lot of people that have never hunted people that have mm-hmm. never gear fished, never fly fished. And then all of a sudden they're like done a little bit of everything. And they're like, wow, I really love, you know, yeah. turkey hunting. And I'm super big on gear fishing for sturgeon. Like yeah. these two things I love. And then eventually, you know, so you obviously are having a major repeat of everyone. People are loving it. They're coming in. Yep. We, uh, we get that stuff all the time and you teach people that have, do know a lot too. So like uh, that event three weeks ago on the Yellowstone, we had a guy, a veteran, he showed up, never uh, heard of us before, but he was a, uh, a fly fishing guide actually down in Wyoming. And we're teaching him about like, uh, so in the U.S. we have the, um, we have Pittman Roberts and then we have, um, oh, I'm not going to remember it, dang it, the uh, Dingle Johnson Act, so the Dingle, which says like your fishing license dollars will go to support the local fisheries and the Fish and Wildlife Department and help make sure there are more fish to catch. 
he's like, I had no idea that my license dollars were going to that. Like all of a sudden he's a like pro, like, well, obviously I'm going to buy a fishing license. Like, yeah, it makes a lot more sense to him. So it's, it's incredible what people don't necessarily know, mm-hmm. even when you are, uh, and I'm not trying to take anything away from that guy. He's a great guy. He knows what he was doing, but if you never had to learn about the conservation piece, then. Well, then I, I like how you explained that at the beginning saying how like you actually run that through because same for me i mean you know i guess like in bc we do most people i would assume know that like their money goes back into it but even hearing like the projects and stuff just affirms that so much more like me being a, a fishing guide obviously i'm okay i've been okay to buy my licenses and i've always been very supportive but yeah. I would love to hear where that, where some of that money is actually going, like see the actual projects or at least hear them. Cause I don't feel like that's made that public and, or it's, it's public, I'm sure, but it's not like, you know, it's yeah, not in my the, face. It's not like I'm scrolling through Instagram and I'm seeing that specifically. Definitely like us fish and wildlife service. I think, I mean, they do a ton of like amazing things, but something we're just not good at at a government level is explaining where we put your money. Yeah. Right. And it's, uh, any conspiracy theories or, you know, corruption or whatever aside, like mm-hmm. we don't need to get into it, but there is some truly amazing things that are being done by nonprofits and U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Bureau of Land Management, all these organizations mm-hmm. like the stockfish to recover traditional trout streams to, you know, plant sagebrush where it needs to be recovered, like all this stuff. But you never hear about it unless you look into it. Like you have to yeah. be looking for the results. I was kind of curious about that, too, the sagebrush. So we're talking sage like we'd yeah so yeah, like what you'd cook with yeah yeah okay so that's just a very wild plant and it holds soil very well so it helps the like what is it doing yeah so it's a native plant so uh sage has a i say like winter winter hardiness is probably not the right scientific term but if, so if you look at like um call it like the western dakotas northern wyoming eastern colorado eastern montana it's kind of this uh, short grass prairie ecosystem. So you have like sharp tail grouse, sage grouse, um, Hungarian partridge, uh, prairie chickens, all these kind of upland birds. But you also have like mule deer, antelope, and they all kind of live off this stuff. But when the grass dies in the winter or it's covered by two feet of snow, you still have sage plants that are there sticking above the snow that are very edible for all these like mule deer and antelope and stuff passing through. But when those sage like goes away, then you don't have that, and then you have bad. It's bad for the, the wintering herds. Like so, last year we had a huge die off in the winter in Wyoming and uh, Montana of like antelope and mule deer because there's just not enough food yeah. to keep the to keep okay. the calories going. So it's more a hunting thing than fishing thing. My brain always it's more goes a hunting thing it. than yeah. a fishing thing, but it's also I mean they hold soil very well. It's a native plant, mm-hmm. so you're going to have less flooding. You're going to have less wildfires, like just making it versus an invasive species that that what doesn't isn't as adapted to that kind of dry yeah yeah because like out here obviously bc and i know going down um obviously but the logging is a huge thing and so the the root systems is what the issue is is they have side of a mountain they rip all these trees down the soil comes down fills the um the rivers or the creeks or whatever with silt and then that prevents the eggs from hatching and that's where the issue lies. So when yeah. they're, you know, when we have these massive rainforests and they're just going in and not, you know, picking sections and I'm sure that still has an effect, but 
not as great. And then, you know, not replanting and mm-hmm. and trying to salvage that kind of thing is, is the issue. So, you know, back in the day when logging was huge, especially BC, like most of the little towns all the way up that turned into cities or into larger towns or whatever, all logging. Everything yeah. was logging. I'm sure some mining, but mostly logging. So, you know, we're trying to bounce back from that and, you know, the steelhead and all that the salmon, like a lot of things happen in the Fraser Valley, but they do weird things, you know, companies when they're like, Oh, we want that product that comes out of there. There's so much money behind them that yeah. sometimes they push forward. But that's where I actually started hearing a lot more of like, you know, our, our dollars in the, in the licensing can go towards some of these things and, and people standing up for it. So yeah, planting, planting plants, but that's interesting. I never really thought of sage plant as, as such a resilient plant, but I guess I have a giant bush outside my house and come to think about it during the winter, it's still there. It's still, yeah. yeah. It's interesting hunting in it. Like you hunt like a thick sage flat, like it's a, you smell it, it hits you. Yeah. Like Thanksgiving. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Then you go home, your wife's like, wow, you smell good. You take off your jacket. She's like, oh, you don't. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Well, Trevor, I've definitely taken up quite a bit of your time. Um, Is there anything else you, well, I guess maybe run through um, where people can find all this stuff one more time, just so it's super. Yeah. So backcountry hunters and anglers. Uh, it's the name of the main charity. I run the Armed Forces Initiative, which is just one of the programs they run. Our website is backcountryhunters.org. Um, if you want our, if you're on Instagram, it's BHA, like Bravo Hotel Alpha underscore AFI, Alpha Foxtrot India. And then depending on where you're at, like Texas is TX AFI on Instagram. Montana is MT AFI on Instagram. But if you follow the main page, you'll see enough stuff that we can get after it. Facebook, it's just called the Armed Forces Initiative on Facebook. Look us up. Beautiful. And then people can donate if they would like to, and let's just keep it growing. That's awesome. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Trevor. I know I was a little late today on it, so I appreciate that, but I'm glad that we uh, were able to follow through and get this done because that was definitely a little treat for me to hear you talk about this. I think it's a really good program that you guys got going, and yeah, love to promote it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Well, you have yourself a great day, and uh, don't answer too many more emails, just a few. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. All right, talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Dead Drifter Society. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with the show and get to know Andrew on Instagram at Dead Drifter Society. Until next time. And there we have it. That was Trevor Hubs with backcountry hunters and anglers so there's definitely a lot of instagrams for it because there's the main one and then one for each state and i guess there's a couple provinces so it's across canada or it's going to be eventually across canada and uh it's pretty much across the board uh down in the u.s so great organization and yeah i have lots of good things to say about it i really love hearing people get out of the house and and into the into the wild as you could say but if you want to go follow along there's a main page which you could find all the different pages from there all the different instagrams and that's bha underscore afi and i'll definitely have that link in the description down below
And as always, if you'd like to have, or hear, I should say, if you'd like to hear anyone else on the podcast, just shoot, shoot me a message over at Dead Drifter Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Gmail, and I will see what I can do. Till next time, I'll catch you later.